Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, February 2nd, 2021. I'm John Budhortz, the editor of Commentary. I thank you again for leaving those five-star reviews at uh, at the uh, iTunes site. Um, somebody asked me uh, in an email whether they needed to leave a five-star review for the show generally or for each episode, and the answer is no. The, you just leave one, and we will be very incredibly grateful uh, that you uh, that you did so. So um, with that, uh, let me introduce to you a senior writer, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive editor, Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And associate editor, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, Joe Biden met with the 10 Republicans who want to make a compromise deal on coronavirus relief. And the drama continues not really about the package itself, which uh, there's a, there's drama about, but about what this negotiation and what's going to happen as a result of it uh, suggests about the Biden presidency in Chrysalis and where the Biden presidency is going to go from here. He said he was the sort of person who could uh, deal, uh, you know, reach across the aisle and work with Republicans and 10 Republicans are coming to him and saying, work with us. And so he can either steamroller this and use the complex reconciliation process to pass his, uh, you know, desired package, or he can try to find common ground with them. Uh, It's very early. uh, And the question that this raises is, what what was the message that got him elected? Um, and I just want to read you something from Mark Halperin from his newsletter, Wide World of News, because he he has an interesting uh, take on this. Um, he says, um, you know, those who thought that Donald Trump's departure and Joe Biden's ascent would cool the intense passions of the left were fundamentally wrong. Uh, the seething rage is still there. And um, the passion uh, for everything that makes the left so enraged about Trump and the right, uh, as he says, if it could all be harnessed, it would be enough to fuel every PlayStation 2 in Brentwood and the Palisades for almost six months. It's an unfathomable amount of power. Um, So the question here is, Uh, The great irony of the Biden presidency, Mark writes, is the very forces that gave him the power he has to force through his agenda comes from a blue unity that actually makes it impossible to try for bipartisan deals. Uh, Because if anything a single Republican senator is for goes through, it will be viewed with extreme suspicion by definition by the left. So... Joe Biden, which reinforces a theory that would be in vogue at both uh, D.C. Bobby Vans if there were no pandemic. Joe Biden actually won the Democratic nomination and the general election, not because he pledged to bring the country together, because he held the most promise to end Donald Trump's time in the saddle and all that came with that. So therefore, Joe Biden might aspire to be the uniter in chief, but he is really the beneficiary of the intense abiding feelings of disunity of 53 to 57% of America. So what this says is that the people who are the most passionate uh, among those who got him elected, they want him to stuff and crush the Republicans. Uh, Whatever his message was isn't what got him elected and isn't what will keep him in power. Yeah, I read something pretty interesting along these lines. Yesterday we were talking about how the um, left wing of the spectrum and even the center left, particularly those in Congress, are kind of expressing a little bit of frustration with Joe Biden. You know, wh- whatever honeymoon period he had sort of evaporated over the course of the last couple of weeks because he's not using the political capital that he gained as a result of winning the presidency. And he's bending over backwards for Republicans and this unity message. And it's frustrating them. They want to see some muscle here. And um, proprietor of Cook Political Report, Charlie Cook, writing in National Review, Um, basically said that this is a misreading of the moment, that it's not as though Joe Biden is husbanding his capital. He's spending it in a way that um, is uh, reckless and irresponsible. He used to quote, it's rather odd that the the Biden White House's initial offer is also become their final demand. 
uh, the Democrats' immediate and instinctive threat to ram down their package through using budget reconciliation process is uh, tone deaf. So that seems like a pretty self-evident observation if you you know were to survey the results of the election. It was a million years ago, I know, but the November election produced very narrow Democratic majorities, regardless of the results in, in Georgia. It is still as as narrow as you can possibly it's get. It's not even a majority. The Senate no, it's not even, even a full majority. majority. And we, ha- we don't even have a power-sharing relationship, so Republicans still have control of their committees. But the bottom line here is that this is going to produce paralytic government. We all knew this in November, and all of a sudden we somehow forgot it in January, but it is still the case. By the way, if uh, the those who put Biden in the White House... They, if they themselves didn't want unity in November, how much less do they want it now? Or do they want it by the time he was nominated? Think of all that transpired between November and now. Right. The, the January 6th moment, I think, has, has had um, an interesting political effect on coalitions that might have had a, a much more humble approach to, to legislating right now. Um, understandably so, and also with a looming trial in the Senate, you know, that that's obviously going to going to have an impact. But the lesson that, that those of us who were watching the election returns come in and looking at some of the exit polling um we're seeing was that, you know, Americans actually dislike Trump intensely. And as, as uh, we've seen recently, especially his handling of the pandemic, but they didn't trust Democrats that much. Joe Biden was the kind of everyman Democrat who they knew his face. They figured he'd be moderate. They put him in office because he wasn't Trump, but down the ballot and certainly at the state level, uh, Democrats are not actually being, are not held in as high esteem as they, as they appear to be acting now. And I think that, that, the American voter is going to get a little sick of the high and mighty tone that we're seeing post January 6th, not because January 6th wasn't a horrible event, but because you can't legislate based on that, continually bringing that up as evidence of why they should have untrammeled power. Okay. So let, let's let try to uh, separate two strands. So the unity message is something that comes pretty much in the wake of the election and particularly in the wake of January 6th, that we are we are one country. We need to we need to have unity and all of that. The Biden message in the general election was that it's enough of this kind of uh, extreme polarization. He's the kind of guy who, unlike Trump, can work with everybody. These aren't the same message. One is a transactional, procedural, political message about how he can lower the temperature and try to find some way to work across the aisle and find some common ground uh, uh, where you can find common ground. And the other is, are we not all Americans? And can we not, can we stop talking about how we're losing our country and uh, storming the Capitol and all of that? They're, they're not really the same. Um, and uh, Republicans and conservatives have taken the unity message a little conveniently to say, Biden doesn't have the right to, if he means this, he shouldn't be advancing his left-wing agenda. That just means that he's, you know, being disingenuous, because if he wants unity, he should do what we want, not what he wants. And that's uh, a clever spin, but it is obviously spin. He did win the election. He won, you know, he got, he won by four and a half points. Uh, he is the head of the Democratic Party. He had a platform. He had an agenda. He had various policies, and he is going to try to enact them to the, uh, to the degree possible. However, if he wants to make the case, as he also made it in the election, that he can work with Republicans across the aisle to break through the political logjam in the United States and show a different way. He's backed himself into a corner because if he can't do it with 10 Republicans, which is exactly the number he needs to get to closure, so he doesn't have to break the filibuster or use reconciliation, he can get 60 votes on a package that will, of course, pass the House, you know, uh, uh, totally. Uh, If he can't do that now, uh, finding common ground on a skinnier uh, COVID relief package that doesn't mean that he can't go back and do other stuff by reconciliation later if Republicans continue to be recalcitrant. 
then he's never going to be able to do it. And that whole part of his appeal uh, will just have been revealed as a kind of PR trick uh, and false. Um, And so uh, this is actually a real struggle. Like this is no, he means this, I think, somewhere in his head. Uh, he doesn't want to ram through things. But, you know, what they can say, which is what presidents always say in this in these circumstances, is, look, I wanted to be bipartisan, but they wouldn't let me. Right. Um, however, I, it's going to be a harder case to make in this case when, I mean, he can say, look, we were too far apart. They they brought me $600 billion. I want $1.9 billion and $1.9 trillion. But, of course, they could move to $900 billion. Uh, and then he can move down and they can make some kind of a deal. But that, he, that's but, the challenge for him. But that old argument, which I think, I mean, Obama made that, right? He's like, the, the Senate won't do what I want. So I've got a, I've got a pen and a phone and I'm going to just make it happen. That's how Biden began his first few days in office is just executive order after executive order. So I think for a lot of the conservatives who I agree, John, kind of, you know, are clutching their pearls over huh, unity. I mean, it, that was all kind of a, a PR message and they, and, and, it shouldn't be taken seriously as a governing strategy because that's not how politics works. But I don't think that he started out. I think the transactional stuff, the I can make deals stuff actually was out the window on day one when he started churning out those executive orders. And not just because he was overturning the Trump stuff, but because he was at the same time also nominating to important positions in his administration, people who were far to the left of what the American voters seem to be returning as a message to the Democrats about what they want for the direction of this country. So he he is governing in a more radical way than he ran. And that's even surprising some of the, the mainstream media that was, you know, spent the entire election boosting his candidacy and, and preventing negative stories about his family from emerging. So he is a bit more radical, at least judging by the first month. <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 I don't want to sound like a, you know, a, a rhino squish here, but I, I, I'm not sure that I agree with you. What he meant was he could find common ground on policies and legislation. He can staff his administration. How he did not promise not to be a left liberal. He just said, uh, "We can find. You know, I'm going to do what I can to work with." the other side. Now you can say that by, you know, by using executive orders and by appointing, you know, by appointing far leftists, um, that violates the spirit of that conception, but I'm not sure that's really fair. Um, because he didn't promise not to staff his administration with commies. You know, he he didn't (laughs) promise not to, you know, he said he would do, he was going to do a lot of these executive orders on day one, most of them. True, but I, I guess pipeline, the drill, I and mean, the more yeah. important ones, he said that was what he was going to do, and of course Trump did the same. Trump uh, in this one way. I mean, Trump's most con- the, the action that that created that uh, hardened the resistance into being was the executive order on the Muslim ban the first week of his presidency that created those scenes at airports with people, you know, like protesting at airports, which was the extension of the Women's March, and then said, okay, we actually have permanent action we can we can take here. Um, but, and Trump was, of course, in much wor- a much worse... I mean, he in some ways he was better because he had the Senate and the House more thoroughly. But, you know, he had gotten 46% of the vote. Biden's got, Biden got 51.5% of the vote. You know, he, you know, he, he lost the popular vote, uh, all of that. So I, I don't know that Biden is in worse, is in worse political shape than, than Trump. But Maybe. I think, I think the idea that he's doing something similar to what, to what you point out, uh, Trump did, um, is goes to Christine's point. I mean, he, he, his pledge was not to be the mirror image of Trump. Right. But I'm saying he did, uh, fair enough. But uh, you also, have this problem in politics and no this is where i think biden wants to get stuff done and you can't get stuff done uh, with a divided you know without 60 uh, votes right so uh, obama had 60 senators until teddy kennedy died he had 60 senators so he was advancing his agenda at will the joke that people forget is this whole thing about how oh i wanted to work with republicans but they wouldn't work with me he didn't need to work with republicans when McConnell said we're not gonna we are not gonna vote for any 
piece of Obama's legislation, that was a statement of weakness, not of strength. It was this idea that he doesn't even need us and we're not going to provide him with cover. We're not going to give him bipartisan cover for left-wing actions. Let him own this and he'll take it and he'll own it uh, for good or ill. Um, th- th- that's not the situation that we that we find ourselves in here. He's got a 50-50 Senate and you know uh, George W. Bush, who had a fifty-fifty Senate, um, you know, ended up having basically passing one set of tax cuts, uh, and then a piece of legislation that was so bipartisan that Republican that activist Republicans hated it more than any other piece of legislation of the twenty-first century until until Obamacare, which was no child left behind. So you do you find yourself in a position where you have to you have to uh, play play the angles, but you know he he is allowed to be a democratic liberal president is what I'm saying, and he can't then also unilaterally not use the tools that other presidents have used, even Trump if he doesn't like Trump, because then he'll look weak. Then it'll be like oh he's just a you know. He's just a simp. Like he's not. He he doesn't. You know, he doesn't have a spine. He's not willing to fight. And I, you know, if I were a Democratic voter, I would take that very ill. If he just, you know, caved because he was making a fetish out of bipartisanship. Well, he's not making a fetish out of bipartisanship. He's making a. I mean, insofar he's not, as right, fetishization. He yeah, he's he's deferring to the legislature in their role of crafting legislation. I mean. Novel concept that, but this is the the first branch of government, Article One, and it has the capacity to do what it wants to do. And Joe Biden can influence it and nudge it and say what I'm going to support and what I'm not going to support, what I'll veto and what I won't. But that's his role, and it's about time that we heard a president say, "Look, the legislature can do and does what it wants to do." But he—that's not what he's saying. That's, that is actually what he said on a couple of occasions. That right, he's not saying, going to intervene. What he said in yesterday was, "I was uh, eager to hear what the Republicans had to say," and his administration is releasing statements that say, "You know, no, 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 no. We're you know, this is our last and final offer, one point nine trillion. Either that's a negotiating position, or it's something that." He is going to give ammunition to the most, you know, to the people from the Lincoln Project to, you know, uh, the people that Mark Halpern are talking about who say it's not enough to do well. And when you have to crush them, crush their spirits, crush their souls, mm-hmm. hear the, la- you know, hear the screaming and the lamentations of their women. That is what that is what you have to do now, because the de- the Republicans are so evil. Well, that is why what's, what's interesting here is not this sort of dry that's not what negotiations. I'm that's their, that's, I'm this, this is what I'm about to say. The yeah. dry negotiations over legislation, which are you know painfully normal um, and therefore rather uninteresting and competent. And good governance is is boring governance. Um, there's a parallel process going on on in the effort on among Democrats, institutional Democrats, as well as the activist left to anathematize aspects of the Republican Party, certain Republican voters, and certain Republican members of Congress, most notably the now infamous Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, who is came in under withering assault from no less a figure than Mitch McConnell yesterday, who denounced her in pretty forceful terms and her Looney Tunes conspiracy theories, um, and said very clearly that there is a cancer on the Republican Party. And it is this conspiratorial idea uh, that has become... Uh, something that is giving Democrats a lot of fodder. And we're already seeing ads come up about, you know, the QAnon wing of the Republican Party being in control. Um, And that's parallel to these legislative negotiations to undermine their, uh, their, the support that they have from voters who aren't in plus 27 Republican districts. Um, And to suggest that, you know, you've got this internal problem, this internal coalition that is making you un less than tasteful to gen to voters and, and making them more amenable to compromise uh, that I don't think you can separate those two assaults, but they're, they're two parts of the same pincer. It's a uh, look, we're, we're the point here is that this is an interesting, it turns out that there's kind of a hinge pivot point going on here that is going to have an effect on the rest of the presidency. And we're only two weeks into the presidency. 
you know, it's not like, I mean, that that is the odd thing about how everything got sped up. Like, we weren't supposed to have the total test of Biden's, uh, you know, one of Biden's quirky messages come up. You know, this is the point at which in a normal circumstance, there would be some hearings on uh, cabinet officials and we'd be hearing about appointments and this and that. And then we'd be, there would be those stories that people on the right seem to think are just evil about his dogs and stuff like that. Like if, you know, if Trump had been a, a normal person as president, he would have had a dog and there could have been stories about Trump's dogs, but he supplied the popular culture with nothing but uh, negativity. So, you know, it's like, whatever. Um, But there's all this kind of like, oh, look, now they're doing stories about Biden's dogs. Well, like I say, if Trump had had a dog, actually some, including the conservative press, would have done stories about his dogs. But he he didn't do that. But that would be the sort of species of the first couple of weeks of a presidency. And instead, we have an ideological and procedural showdown going on here that is uh, that that's just um you know among the many uh, novel things about this uh, novelty and what the republican the 10 republicans are saying is so at at its root and its core sensible um that you can see how the refusal to negotiate or the refusal to find common ground on some of this is will be a species of I can't go against my, you know, the passion in in my party to like stick it to them. Because if they don't want state and local aid, so don't give state and state and local aid if what you're trying to do is pump some money into the economy. If they don't want the fifteen dollar minimum wage, don't force through the fifteen dollar minimum wage now. You can do it in March. You know, I mean, it doesn't follow logically. Uh, that the the Republicans are saying we want a huge amount of money after the money that's already been spent for this aid, and we can make a deal and give you something that we have not seen in Washington in twenty years. In twenty years, which is a serious negotiation that shows people giving and taking on both sides and having something that they can claim. Um, that's what he's being offered. And it's not like he can't keep the reconciliation in his quiver or the breaking of the filibuster in his quiver. Just don't have to do it now on February 2nd. But the passions of the moment may make it impossible for him to go into that. Well, and I think that that, that to Noah's point, it's this legitimacy issue, right? If you treat these 10 Republicans with the legitimacy that their position and their bargaining uh, strategy uh, would suggest they should have, then you are, then, then you're a traitor to the democratic resistance that is now ascendant and has power. And I think, I mean, that sounds very Manichaean, but that is actually the way a lot of people and particularly the, the sort of more progressive legislators in the house do see this. This is, this is a, this is a uh, black and white issue for them. If you're Republican, you're bad. And it's not just that they're trying to cast aspersions on the Marjorie Taylor greens. I mean, that they have broader ambitions for, for eliminating access to institutions of power by anyone who was a Trump supporter or who, you know, gave money to Trump. We see people deplatformed and fired and canceled for that. I mean, the, the broad reach of the more radical among them is is to eliminate from public life these people who embrace those views, even if they didn't support an insurrection or QAnon. So I think that they're on the edge of this legitimacy argument is, you know, and this is actually where the Republicans have an, a very important power. And it's coming up, I guess, on Wednesday when the conference meets. They need to get rid of what I think McConnell correctly called a cancer. They need to make a show of the people who are the most egregious offenders in this, strip them of their power and committees and show you cannot do this in our party. I don't know if they'll have the ability to do that. We'll see. And it's also, you know, whether or not um, Biden and the Republicans can come to some sort of give and take here, I think is a is a very important turning point that will tell us whether or not um lawmaking and governance can be about policies or people because because if it's about policies then yes that can happen if it's about people you see the the issue is um the the 
the the left will not want to negotiate, will not want give and take with any Republican, no, even if they are proposing things that, that, that those on the left are perfectly comfortable with, because the idea is, how can you give any satisfaction to that person? Right. And if, if that is where we are, we never get out of that. That is, that is, that is the, the hole that we need to get out of. I mean, there's another, uh, I mean, maybe this is excessively Machiavellian and people don't make plans this way, but you know, um, if you if you sort of try to think longer term, and I mentioned this yesterday, you'll have these ten Republicans. Uh, they'll have to move toward Biden if there is if there were to be some kind of a bipartisan deal. So they go from six hundred billion to a trillion, and there is some state and local whatever there is that they have to agree to while Biden moves down. Uh, if you're Biden. Uh, you maybe calculate that even though they're working with you and it's wonderful and you hug that you give them a big hug, uh, they become villains uh, to the republic to the activist Republican right, and you split the Republican Party even further into its warring camps and it's you know uh, the war between sort of the governing party and the and the uh, plat and the platform party or the personal party and uh, make, make them more and more and more uh, susceptible to embracing uh, a political extreme that is actually going to hurt them in the next election. When you, that's, that's, I, that doesn't seem Machiavellian to me at all. There, I can't see any other rationale for why congressional Democrats have given Republicans in the house an ultimatum strip this woman of her committees or we'll do it for you. Oh, I mean not, that will only yeah. induce tribal solidarity, right? No, but I'm talking about the I'm talking about the negotiation with Biden, not 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 the that's Martin the same phenomenon. Taylor Green thing. Well, look, I mean the the, the situation with Marjorie Taylor Greene is that uh, Republicans have every interest in uh, making her obscure. Democrats have every interest in making her the most famous person in America. And Republicans who have every interest in making them obscure have no idea how to make her obscure. And Democrats are going to make her the face of the Republican Party. And it's striking. Republicans could make her the face of the Republican Party. They could. And you know what? Josh Howley had his best fundraising quarter ever after the events uh, in in early January. Or not quarter, rather. His his fundraising report, according to uh, this week. I, I don't know when the when the period was, but he raised the better part of a million dollars or um, yeah, over a million, almost a million dollars over the course of this month uh, after he became the focus of so much frustration from Republicans, not Democrats. Right. Republicans. Well, look, are, are going maybe, after they may be the new face, right? This is the Republican challenge of our time. I mean, she can both be a cancer on the, you know, on the Republican Party as it is commonly understood, or a you know, or a mutate or a mutation that is leading to a different future, and we don't know the answer to that yet. That's the you know, that's part of what the uncertainty of the next couple of years uh, is is going to bring. You know, I mean, so she got a couple hundred thousand votes in Georgia in a district that any Republican would have won by a couple hundred thousand votes. Does that she got to win that primary because there were twelve people in the field? Uh, but you know, is she going to be? Is she's going to raise tens of millions of dollars and be a, a, a political force of her own, assuming that she doesn't end up, you know, uh, in a straitjacket uh, in a mental institution, which is where she belongs. Um, and we don't know what that's going to whether that has legs or you know what that will suggest to. To other people, what I do know is that there is a body of opinion, um, maybe best expressed by our former colleague Max Boot, who wrote a piece yesterday saying that the retiring, you know, sort of moderate conservative senator Rob Portman in Ohio is worse than Marjorie Taylor Greene. He's worse because he didn't stop Trump, and she, and so even though Rob Portman seems like a good guy and a it's his cowardice that led that allowed Trump to be to be Trump. So uh, that set of opinions, that idea, uh, will also enhance and bolster um, the 
the sort of reputation of Marjorie Taylor Greene. Because the idea is, you know, what's even worse is like, you know, the the good German. The good German is worse than the bad German. You know, you have to get into a very interesting mindset, first of all, to think of them as the good German and the bad German, but also like that is not right. That is that is a that is a a, a moral stain even to think such a thing. And yet, uh, though I understand the you know the the anger and frustration, and I think it is true that if a phalanx of moderate Republicans in 2017 had stood up and said, we can't deal with this president. I, I don't know that things would have gone worse for the Republican party than they, than they've actually gone, but that didn't happen because that's not what happens in life. That's not how things work. Uh, and we can get to the question of what Trump is going to expect from the Republicans uh, in a minute. Uh, after after they sort of kowtow to him. But uh, before we get to that, let me talk to you about today's uh, sponsor, Dan Senor's podcast, Post-Corona, which I've been telling you is just an extraordinarily illuminating look at uh, the condition of America un, you know, during the pandemic and what America is going to be like when the pandemic has concluded. Uh, Dan's new episode out this week is uh, an interview with Scott Gottlieb, the former head of the FDA, American Enterprise Institute scholar, and one of the leading voices on the pandemic and the health consequences of the pandemic. And he is um, uh, guardedly optimistic about the uh, vaccination regime and the and the positive effects that it is going to have, and yet cautious about the variants and what they are going to require. It's a very uh, interesting, sober, judicious, and and fascinating conversation that you will very much profit from hearing. <clears throat> if you subscribe to Post-Corona, you can also go back and listen to episodes uh, with me talking about the future of um, Broadway and popular culture in New York after the pandemic. You can listen to Neil Ferguson, the great historian, talking about the historical analogies and parallels. He does not parallel it to the 1918 flu, but to a flu in 1957 and 1958 that also featured the dramatic uh, discovery and promulgation of a vaccine that uh, that has been lost uh, in the midst of history, uh, the mists of history, excuse me, um, uh, various other really interesting uh, voices, uh, Rehan Salam of the Manhattan Institute, Derek Thompson of the Atlantic, Adam Grant from Wharton, uh, Billy Bean, the the uh, the baseball genius of the Oakland Athletics, um, and uh, just really a, a terrific, fun, interesting, focused podcast. Post-Corona, Dan Senor. Uh, go to the iTunes store, go to Stitcher, go to Google Play, subscribe, listen. You will thank me for having done so. Um, so uh, Donald Trump has two new lawyers. The The trial begins next week, I think. And uh, the two new lawyers are interesting. One apparently is Roger Stone's lawyer. So uh, so we, we, uh, we end up back at the beginning, uh, Trump's political career having been created by Roger Stone and now Trump's um, uh, second impeachment trial will be will feature a lawyer given to him by Roger Stone, and then the other guy is evidently uh, the guy who made some kind of a private deal that made sure that Bill Cosby was not prosecuted for uh, for sexual assault back in two thousand five in Pennsylvania. So, <clears throat> so this is a really terrific high high end glistening team of first-rate barristers who are going to present Donald Trump's case before the uh, American people. Um, so I want to lay out for you just very quickly a, a scenario, and this is my scenario. So what the Republicans in the Senate want to do is say, this procedure is ridiculous, it's unconstitutional, you can't convict, there's no... There's no um, there's no remedy for the conviction of an impeached president after he leaves office. Since the only remedy, there is no remedy. He's no longer president. He's a private citizen. We cannot try him. Um, you know, three Scott, John Yu says so, and uh, this other guy says so, and three lawyers say so, three constitutional scholars say so, though hundreds say otherwise, but nonetheless. So 
we're just not even going to engage. We just, it's unconstitutional. Uh, we're not going to convict. Genug, we're done. Uh, Trump doesn't want that. Noah, what does he want? Well, he wants people to go to bat for him. Um, the procedural arguments are too passive in his view. He wants people to be on TV defending him, supporting him, saying the craziest possible things they can, reflecting his own insularity and paranoia. One of his attorneys did just that, actually, on Fox yesterday, um, which is something he wasn't getting from his more competent team that uh, resigned en masse. Um, and so, and, and this is in keeping with something that you talk about often, John, is that he gets no satisfaction from people who defend him when he's right. The satisfaction that he derives from his expressions of authority and power over people is that people is that he gets people to defend him when he's wrong, when it's really uncomfortable. That's power. That's real authority. And that's the sort of thing that he likes to see in his subordinates. And like we talked about the other day, it seems like he, what he really wants is for his attorneys to argue the election fraud claims in the Senate and make the Republicans' votes of, for acquittal as discomforting as possible. Well, he went, right. He went, he doesn't actually want a trial. He wants a wrestling match and he, you know, he <laughs> wants to call in, you know, the people he wants to call in. And, uh, but, but that's, I mean, it's the same way he, when he talked about, and I actually think this was one of the huge appeals of him as a candidate back in 2016, he talked about being able to make deals, right. And the American people were like, this is great. You have this kind of outside the box thinker who's going to come in here. He's not a, not a swamp creature. He's going to make deals. He never, he doesn't make deals, right. He performs his own, you know, ego and then demand submission to it, which is not the same thing. He, he's, you know, more like a mafia don than a, than a deal maker. But I feel like this is the same approach he's taking with the trial. And it, it's going to put a lot of Republicans in an awkward position, which is, of course, also something he, like you said, no, he wants to see him squirm. He wants more of the very thing that got him into so much trouble. He wants he wants people <laughs> to defend his absolutely m m most indefensible positions to the death. Yeah. Right, and what's important is that he is he is effectively going to get what he wants because if he runs the if the trial is run the way he's talking about it being run or that we're hearing he wants it to be run, the Democrats present all this information about how he inspired, uh, summoned, and incepted and helped create the conditions for the insurrection. And he stands there and says, China and Venezuela, uh, you know, uh, tricked the machined algorithms and stole the election. And there were ballots that were set on fire in Detroit and blah, 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 blah. And then everybody starts screaming and objections are raised and all this stuff happens. And then Republicans vote to acquit. He po he he presents the worst possible case for himself, but it's not even a case for himself, right? Because he's and not they, arguing the facts of the case; and he's they, arguing something completely different, right? And here's the thing: this is what goes to you. Want to talk about deal making? So Christine said he's not a deal maker. So all of these Republicans spent four years, unless you were Matt Gates, unless you were Mo Brooks, unless you were Louis Gohmert, unless you were a true believer spent four years fig trying to figure out how to be transactional with Donald Trump, Mitch McConnell most of all, right? And so what happened with Mitch McConnell in the wake of the November election, uh, because God saw fit to make sure that, you know, that uh, David Perdue fell just a few thousand votes short of getting over 50%, so there were two seats up for grabs, in Georgia, and Mitch McConnell is sitting there looking at his, you know, the whole question of his future, and he says, okay, well, I got to go soft on how the election is over, and it's enough, and shut up and go away, uh, because I need his help in Georgia. And simply by doing that, Trump loses him, Trump loses Georgia, and he loses the Senate majority leadership. The Republicans lose the Senate majority, and we could have the you know breaking of the filibuster and the reconciliation process falling apart as a result of that because you can't make a deal with him he doesn't play he doesn't deal with you he wants you 
not only, as you guys keep saying, not only he wants to make the most indefensible case and then require you to support him in the worst possible way, and that's where we're going here. And it's very helpful to him. But here's what, okay, here's here's a possible spanner in the works. I, If the evidence that is accumulated and uh, demonstrated at trial is as visceral and as horrifying as I think it's likely to be, because that's actually been something that the Democrats have been signaling, um, there is an opportunity for senators of conscience to say, you know, I was, I, I had questions about the election. I was, you know, I heard Donald Trump's concerns. I understand everyone's anger. But what is in front of us right now? This evidence is so overwhelmingly uh, horrifying that we cannot call these people patriots and justify anything they did. And 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 because the incitement was straightforward, I mean, they can they can craft a, a, a morally coherent argument, even if. But it does. You're right, John. It requires them to abandon Trump. So that's really if they don't, though, what they are saying about the Republican Party is going to haunt them and should for a very long time, because it's a party that is calling patriotic what happened on January 6th rather than calling it what it was, which was violent and destructive and criminal. Look, we've been trying to read the tea leaves around Mitch McConnell forever. He, he's been attacking Donald Trump, and then he voted with Rand Paul in this uh, in this procedural vote against the impeachment proceedings as being unnecessary. And then he comes out yesterday and issues this statement against Marjorie Taylor Greene, saying that these conspiracy theories are a cancer on the Republican Party. I do not know how he votes to acquit if this is the case they present. He's literally saying we have to excise this tumor from this party and that then you're going to present a, a terrible uh, case of cancer before them and, and, and say, basically, you know, what are we going to do about this thing? You're either going to let this metastasize or you're going to excise it. Look, um, the Lindsey Graham went on Sean Hannity last night and said, you know, these we tell the Democrats not to put on a case because they're not going to get in a conviction. And, you know, if they do, we're going to have to call the FBI in. Now, I was listening to this, and I'm trying to figure out what on earth is he. He, They think, or Lindsey Graham in his weird uh, Machiavellian efforts to play every side against the middle says that if they call in the FBI, the FBI is going to reveal that the leaders of the insurrection had pre, you know, had already decided they were going to try to storm the Capitol. And that there's all this information that there were, you know, days of planning. That guy put the bombs on the street. We saw the video of the guy putting the pipe bombs on the street on, to, you know, Tuesday night before the riot. And that there were messages about how they were going to go through this door, go through this gate. And while Trump was speaking, they were already moving and all of that. How you live in a mindset in which you think that is going to be exculpatory for Trump who said, let's have a big demonstration on the 6th of January and bring tens of thousands of people to the Capitol. It'll be wild. Well, it'll be wild. And then said at the meeting, go go to the walk to the Capitol building. How that's exculpatory. You have to live inside a very strange uh, legal, political, theoretical bubble. And people are, like I read it, the federal people are saying, oh, you know, we can now see, I read this pajamas media piece, we now see this was all pre-planned. Therefore, Trump is in the clear because it didn't all just happen because he said it in the speech. Which is crazy because not only can you call the FBI, you can now call as a witness or subpoena maybe as a witness this White House staffer who was the person involved in organizing the events of the day, whose name I can't remember right now. But you know what? Next week, if all this happens, she's going to be one of the most famous people in America. Um, and all this fundraising and everything like that. There was clearly more planning going on here. Not that the planning was specifically, you know, go and hunt for Mike Pence in the Capitol building. But it was, I mean, the the, who, well, and it's not a criminal. This sense. is this is not a criminal trial where the burden of proof right. is quite high. This is a political trial where this is much more about what his intentions were and could he have prevented what he already should have known to be a violent, you know, possibility. But if you're throwing in with this case now, I mean, you're aligning yourself. The people who are going to go to bat for you and defend your your point of view during this trial are the the D team. 
I mean, they had the, there's this piece in, in Axios today, which is the final installation of this long running report on the events that led to this thing. Jonathan Swan reports it. And it's pretty well written. Um, who knows the extent to which the, the quotes can be verified, but there are quotes. But it just paints this portrait of, of an absolute mania that the president had been persuaded by and the people around him were catering to, the less responsible people. And the, those are the people who are going to be arguing this case. The Sidney Powells of the world or the people who align with her are going to be arguing this case. And it's just not going to be reflective of reality. So you're you're literally just folding your arms and stamping your feet and saying, this is what I believe, even though everyone knows you're being disingenuous. Everyone knows that you're lying through your teeth and you couldn't possibly believe these addle brain theories unless you deserve to be committed involuntarily because they're crazy. Well, why would you set yourself up in that company? Because you You think that's what the voters want. And that's why this is a, we are, this is a, we have a two-year period in which the soul and the future of a 160-year-old political party uh, is going to be tested as it has never been tested before. Um, even if you accept uh, every uh, every sort of uh, MAGA American greatness prescription that uh, and a lot of it, a lot of them I do accept that uh, he did a lot of good things as president. He did judges, he did the Abraham court, he did this, that uh, the Russia investigation was a, you know, scandalous uh, and nightmarish overreach. That the first impeachment was a, was a mistake. All of all, you know, or, or like a, was a sort of malign act. All, all of that stuff. Where, where this has now inexorably led to is a revision of the history of the presidency uh, according to which everything was going to be fine and he was going to win in a landslide and all of this. But somehow the liberals caused a pandemic to happen or lied about a pandemic happening to, you know, to kill him off and to bring about uh, socialism in one country. And I have to say there is this story today uh, about the postmortem done by Trump's pollster, Tony Fabrizio, uh, trying to figure out why the election was lost, which um, apparently he did, even though Trump thinks the election wasn't lost. So using exit data from 10 states, what he really seems to get at is that the pandemic in these states was the number one political issue. And uh, the people who voted on this number one political issue broke for Biden three to one. Now, remember, in these 10 states, uh, the margins weren't enormous uh, in Biden's favor. So if they had broken for Biden two to one instead of three to one, Trump likely could have won the election instead of losing it. Uh a three to one break on the most important issue. So what what a normal person says is he mishandled it. It went wrong for him, and he there was this moment in March. We know his poll numbers were going up. All anybody ever all anybody wanted was a steady hand at the tiller in the White House, <clears throat> and he uh, was behaving so erratically that he himself absented himself from the briefings for months. Remember. Like, because they weren't going well for him, because he would talk about bleach, or he would talk about shining the light down your voice, or he would say, it's going away. Remember the, it's going away? It's going to go away, just like these things. Who knows why it happens, but it goes away, and all of that. And yet, it is now going to be doctrine and dogma that uh, he won the election, he didn't lose it, and that the pandemic was a hoax, even though it's killed 450,000 people. And that, uh, you know, here here we are. And if the the majority of the Republican Party effectively embraces this version of reality or the majority, um, you really could see a kind of the, the collapse of one of the oldest political parties in the world. What that means, I don't know, because it's not as though those, it's not as though there won't be a, a, a serious opposition uh, to democratic and liberal overreach. But um, you cannot, I mean, 
normal people who just want to live their lives without being told that they have to believe in things that are not true are going to feel sordid and gross in being in in being in proximity to the people who insist that these uh, lies and and madnesses are real. Well, and there actually won't be an effective opposition to democratic power if the party does collapse, because it takes a long time for the splintered factions to reform into something that could win elections and, and return to power. So it, it's a recipe. I think that's in part why McConnell's statement about the QAnon type uh, representative being a cancer is is apt. I mean, if you don't get rid of it, and then you have to usually do some follow up treatments with you know, radiation or chemotherapy, that's how you get rid of that. And it can still come back, right? Like you can have a recurrence. So his I like that metaphor, uh, both for its the starkness of his own expression of his feelings. But because if that doesn't get excised, it's as Noah said, it metastasizes, it spreads. And there will be no way to fight against it's funny, John, that you said, if people who don't want to be told how to live their lives, you know, by lies, there are also a huge number of Americans who don't want to be told how to live their lives by the state and told that they can't express their religion or their feelings about, you know, science or families or anything, because that's not considered, that's not allowed anymore. So there's, there's a large group of people, uh, including some old mainstream liberals, who aren't going to be happy with a dead Republican Party either, because there will be no check on, on that kind of approach to power. So we are in an interesting position here because on the one hand, we were saying it's a slow news day today, one of the first slow <laughs> news days because nothing, you know, there hasn't been anything popping and new. And also we but, found a good metaphor now. See, I was claiming metaphor, metaphor was dead. <laughs> but I'm saying like, we, I, I think we see the, the, the outline of the Biden presidency is going to be decided this week. And the outline of the Republican Party's future is going to be decided next week and the week after by what happens in the impeachment trial. So we are on the cusp or on the verge of knowing a great deal about what our, you know, uh, near-term to long-term futures are going to be like just from the analysis we have provided with you, we have provided you today on this uh, on this podcast. So just think of the illumination and the anxiety that I've provoked in you and the crushing morosity that is now consuming your soul as a result of the mistake you made by listening all the way here to 52 minutes and 23 seconds and we will try to do it again tomorrow although i believe abe will not be joining us tomorrow as he is moving so uh it'll just be the three of us crushing your spirit so for uh for the uh, soon to be absent abe christine and noah i'm john Popor. let's keep the candle burning